0: wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 151, The St. Ledger Expedition. For the last couple of weeks, our attention turned to Philadelphia, But before that, we were following General Johnny Burgoyne as his army moved into New York and reached the Hudson River. Burgoyne had also sent a second force on a different route led by General Barry St. Ledger. Today, we are going to look at that, the St. Ledger Campaign. I already gave some background about General St. Ledger back in Episode 142. Barrymore Matthew St. Ledger was an Irish-born son of a noble Protestant family. He had extensive experience in Canada during the French and Indian War and had risen to lieutenant colonel by the beginning of the Revolutionary War. By this time, he had the temporary rank of brigadier general in America and an independent command. General Burgoyne had been moving the main army from Canada down Lake Champlain to Fort Ticonderoga, then on to the Hudson River, where he planned to move on to Albany. Albany. At the same time, General St. Leger would take his smaller force up the St. Lawrence River to Lake Ontario. From there, his force would move east through the Mohawk Valley with the intent of linking up with General Burgoyne's army at Albany. St. Leger's smaller force consisted of just two regiments of British regulars, about 80 German Jaegers, and about a 100 French laborers. The bulk of his army consisted of local Loyalists and Native Americans. Accompanying St. Ledger was Lieutenant Colonel Sir John Johnson. For Sir John, this trip was more of a homecoming. He was the son of Sir William Johnson, who I've mentioned in earlier episodes. Remember the father, William Johnson, had been the Indian agent in the region for many decades. Sir William was an adopted member of the Iroquois tribe, and had an Iroquois mistress-slash-common-law wife. He was also a large landholder in western New York and a major general in the Tryon County Militia. The son, Sir John, had been born and raised in New York. He had close relationships with the Iroquois, as well as his fellow colonists. At the age of 13, Sir John had gone off to war with his father during the French and Indian War. He had also helped his father with treaty negotiations following Pontiac's rebellion. In 1768, Sir John was present at Fort Stanwix when his father, as British agent, negotiated a treaty with the Iroquois defining borders for both natives and colonists. Sir John then went on to visit England for several years, at which time he was knighted by King George III. When Sir William finally passed away in 1774, Sir John inherited his father's vast estate in the Mohawk Valley. He also inherited Sir William's command of the Tryon County Militia. In all of this, Sir John was assisted by his cousin, Guy Johnson, who inherited Sir William's position as Superintendent of Indian Affairs in North America. Like his father, John Johnson was an outspoken Tory and a supporter of the king. As the Patriots began to take power in 1775, John Johnson remained in New York but kept a low profile. Even so, he had to abandon his estates and flee to Canada in early 1776, escaping a Patriot militia party sent to arrest him. From Montreal, he organized the King's Royal Regiment of New York, sometimes called the King's Yorkers. This Loyalist regiment comprised mostly of fellow New York Loyalists who had fled their homes when Patriots took over the state. Now these soldiers hoped to reclaim their homes and secure the colony once again for the king. About 350 Loyalists joined St. Ledger in this effort to take back western New York from the rebels. Also joining the expedition was Joseph Brandt, also known as he was a Mohawk chief who was brother-in-law of John Johnson's father. Sir William's Iroquois mistress-slash-common-law wife was Molly Brant, who was Joseph's older sister. Brant fought in several battles during the French and Indian War under the leadership of Sir William. Since his father died when he was an infant and his stepfather died when he was a young teenager, Joseph became very close to Sir William, He was about the same age as William's son, John, so the two men grew up together. Brant attended an Indian school in Connecticut, where he learned the English language and customs. While there, he also taught the Mohawk language to a missionary. He had planned to attend King's College in New York, later known as Columbia University, but at this time it was just after Pontiac's Rebellion and relations between Indians and colonists were not at their best, so he opted to return to upstate New York. Brant fought in several more military campaigns under Sir William, mostly against tribes that defied Iroquois rule. During this same period, Brant took an Oneida wife and spent time translating the Bible into the Mohawk language. With the support of Sir William, Brant became a Mohawk chief in 1774. The following year, Brant traveled to London to meet with Lord George Germain. Their talks focused on colonial encroachment onto Iroquois land. Germain promised Brant and the Iroquois the support of the British government against these colonial land grabs. While in London, Brant also met with King George III and joined the Freemasons. Confident in the support of the government, Brant returned to America in 1776 with the British fleet that was headed to New York, as part of that army, Brant fought at the Battle of Long Island. After that battle, though, Brant made his way back to Iroquois territory. There, he raised an army of about three hundred warriors, as well as a hundred loyalists who opposed Patriot movements into their territory. After about a year of this, Brant participated in an Iroquois council to determine whether the Iroquois Confederation would remain neutral in the war between the British and its colonists, or whether they would support the British government. Brant was a strong supporter of the latter, arguing that sitting out the war would mean the government would be less inclined to protect tribal lands later. The colonists were taking land. The British government vowed to protect their land. So Brant thought supporting the British was a pretty easy call. The council, however, could not really come to any agreement. In the end, some of the tribes, particularly Brant's Mohawks, as well as the Seneca, did fight with the British. The Oneida and Tuscarora, for the most part, threw in their lot with the Patriots. Brant departed the conference in time to bring hundreds of Mohawk warriors to the St. Ledger expedition. He caught up with the expedition after it had already left Montreal. With Brant's arrival, the native warriors made up more than half of the roughly 2,000 man force that was under St. Ledger. Because of the close relationship between the native and colonial leaders like Johnson and Brant on this campaign, there was a much better level of cooperation between the two groups than we would see in Burgoyne's army. St. Ledger had little experience commanding native warriors, but he did rely on his colonial officers to keep the diverse collection of soldiers working and fighting together. Before we dive into the St. Ledger expedition directly, I think it's important to give a little more attention to the role of Native Americans in the fighting generally. As the examples of John Johnson and Joseph Brandt provide, there were many men who were comfortable living in both the provincial and Native cultures. In many ways, these two cultures were greatly intermingled. They both relied on trade with the other and there was a great deal of interaction. Neither group lived in isolation of the other. Many got along quite well and even intermarried. At the same time, there was a reasonable amount of fear and distrust of the other. Native tribes were continually in fear of settlers taking more of their land, despite treaties to the contrary. Many settlers lived in fear of Indian attacks, sometimes as part of a larger campaign Other times, just isolated renegades looking to rape and pillage. As the rebellion grew, both sides attempted to get local tribes to ally with their side, or at least not join into an alliance with the enemy. As I mentioned earlier, Guy Johnson served as superintendent of Indian affairs. Guy came to America from Ireland as a young teenager to join his uncle, Sir William, in the Mohawk Valley. Guy had married Sir William's daughter. Whose mother was one of Sir William's many Iroquois mistresses. Because of his position, Guy Johnson is pretty critical to British native relations in this region, but he was sidelined for the coming events. Guy had traveled to London a couple years earlier along with Joseph Brandt. He had gone because another British Indian agent in Canada, John Campbell, claimed jurisdiction as superintendent there. Guy went to plead his case to officials in London but they upheld that Sir Guy's authority covered only New York, not Canada. So when Guy and Brandt returned with the British fleet to New York City in 1776, the Patriots had already taken over upstate New York. So Guy was asked to remain in New York City rather than go back to Canada for fear of getting into a leadership tussle with Campbell. So Guy was stuck in New York City while the entire Burgoyne and St. Ledger armies were deployed in upstate New York. I mention this to underscore the fact that Native support was really not an afterthought or an extra. The British gave great attention to maintaining good relations with the Native tribes in times of peace and actively encouraging their cooperation in times of war. We mostly hear about the Natives when they are serving alongside British soldiers, as they were in the St. Ledger expedition, but this was only one small part of a much larger British effort to make use of their Indian subjects. British agents in the western frontier had spent much of 1776 encouraging native tribes to attack colonists living in their territories. Traditionally, warriors had avoided larger attacks on towns for fear that the British would send armies of devastation to take even more tribal land. I've already mentioned a few examples of this trend in previous episodes. For example, in episode 16, during the Anglo-Cherokee War, episode 19, the response to Pontiac's uprising, episode 44, Lord Dunmore's War, and episode 102, the Cherokee War. These are all examples of where the colonists, backed by the British government, rose up to fight back against an Indian uprising and crushed the Indians and took bunches of their land. So most tribes knew that going to war against the colonists would usually end badly for the tribes. But now, with the British government encouraging them to go to war, many warriors were emboldened to act, at least in some smaller raids. A great many Shawnee, Mingo, and Delaware warriors began attacking settlers in outposts throughout the Ohio Valley. This includes modern-day West Virginia, Kentucky, Ohio, even parts of western Maryland and Pennsylvania. The Americans had considered sending armies of retaliation, but they were concerned that doing so might only encourage the much larger numbers of warriors who had remained neutral to take up arms against the Patriots as well. By early 1777, Congress had deployed newly promoted Brigadier General Edward Hand who, you may recall, had fought with distinction at the Princeton Campaign, to go to Fort Pitt in western Pennsylvania. They also deployed several regiments, as well as much-needed munitions and supplies, in preparations for raids into the Ohio Valley if necessary. This was around the same time that Lord Germain was sending the orders to General Carleton about Burgoyne's mission and orders to Carlton to encourage friendly tribes to engage in raids along the Pennsylvania and Virginia frontier, so that the Continentals would have to divert more men and resources there and away from upstate New York. In 1775, London had created civil offices for lieutenant governors for western outposts. These included Detroit in what is today Michigan, Vincennes in what is today Indiana, and Kaskaskia in what is today Illinois. The main job of these officials was to encourage tribes in their areas to support the king and go to war against the rebels. In June 1777, Henry Hamilton, who was stationed in Detroit, convened a council of tribes to encourage warriors to attack the rebels. He provided them with weapons and gifts. Some of the warriors went up to Montreal to join with the Burgoyne and St. Ledger expeditions but most would remain and attack outposts in the Ohio Valley. To further encourage this, Hamilton offered to pay for rebel scalps, a practice for which he later became known among the Indians as hair buyer. While the attacks became a terror for settlers living on the frontier, they remained mostly an irritant to the American war effort overall. The Americans would eventually have to respond but that response would come at a later time and is something I'm going to cover in future episodes. The Patriots also attempted diplomatic efforts with various tribes, although they did not have the diplomats and the ability to provide gifts and incentives that the British did. As a result, the Patriots focused mostly on encouraging only the tribes who live most closely among them to ally themselves or at least agree to remain neutral in the fighting. General Philip Schuyler had spent a great deal of time during his command meeting and negotiating with the Iroquois and other tribes in upstate New York. The Patriots were on fairly good terms with the Oneida tribes, which was one of the smaller Iroquois tribes, but whose land would be the main area where St. Ledger's army would confront the Americans. The first target of the St. Ledger army was Fort Stanwix. Which the Americans had renamed Fort Schuyler. The fort sits in what is today known as the town of Rome, New York. British General Stanwix had built the fort during the French and Indian War to protect access to the Mohawk Valley and Hudson Rivers from a Western attack. After the Treaty of Fort Stanwix in 1768, the fort was abandoned as it was inside Iroquois territory. The unoccupied fort fell into disrepair over the next decade the Patriots reoccupied the fort in 1776 as part of their efforts to prevent a British invasion from Canada. By early 1777, the fort still was not in terribly good condition. The garrison attempted to rebuild defensible walls and brought back cannons from Fort Tigonderoga to use for the fort's defenses. In May 1777, Continental Colonel Peter Gansevoort took command of the fort. Gansevoort was a young officer in his twenties. He had come from a Dutch family that had lived in New York for generations. His brother served as a member of the New York Provincial Congress as a strong advocate for the patriot cause. Before the war began, peter had joined the Albany County militia. Because of his commanding presence and his family connections, General Schuyler had recommended him for a commission as a major in the Continental Army when it began in 1775. Major Gansevoort participated in the Quebec Campaign, but was one of the thousands of soldiers who fell ill and was lying in a sickbed in Montreal when General Montgomery launched his failed attack on Quebec. After the withdrawal of the American forces from Canada, Gansevoort took command of Fort George, also in upstate New York. In November 1776, Congress promoted him to colonel and gave him command of the 3rd New York Regiment. Mostly because Gansevoort had recruited the regiment himself. In May 1777, Gansevoort took command at Fort Stanwix, which again the Patriots had renamed Fort Schuyler, but for simplicity's sake, I'm going to continue to call Fort Stanwix. Gansevoort commanded a garrison consisting of his regiment plus some other local militia, as well as anybody else in the area that they could scrape up. The total garrison was about 550 soldiers. His second-in-command was Lieutenant Colonel Marinus Willet, who you may recall played a key role in the Peekskill raid a few months earlier, and if you don't remember, go back and listen to episode 133. The Americans had received intelligence about the British expedition to Lake Ontario and expected that the expedition would attempt to take Fort Stanwix. The fort received word of the loss of Fort Ticonderoga and the retreat of the Continental Army. During all of June and July, there were several attacks near Fort Stanwix, including two soldiers who were shot and scalped. One of them, Captain Gregg, feigned death while being scalped. After the raiding party left, Gregg's dog ran off and found help, getting two civilians who were fishing nearby to come to his rescue and bring him back to the fort. A few weeks later, a group of Indians fired on a group of young girls picking berries in the woods, killing two of them. These attacks were by warriors who had not joined the St. Ledger expedition, but who were operating on their own, preying on isolated individuals or small groups rather than larger or entrenched garrisons like the fort itself. However, these attacks did keep the fort on alert and they were expecting a larger attack. Fort Stanwix, as I said, was in Oneida territory. The Oneida were friendly to the Patriots and still maintained their official neutrality in the war. The Oneida were in regular communications with the Fort Garrison and were just as outraged by these attacks as the garrison itself. It was believed that these attacks were from other tribes who were working in concert with the British and who were scouting the territory. However, no one actually ever identified any of the attackers. By July 27, 1777, St. Ledger's expedition had reached Lake Ontario and had begun its march inland toward Fort Stanwix. Less than a week later, on August 2, the advance of the column came within sight of Fort Stanwix. They arrived just in time to see the last of a supply train enter the fort, raising the garrison's numbers to over 700 defenders and with enough arms, ammunition, and supplies to withstand a siege of up to six weeks. Although the fort had sufficient food and ammunition, the gunpowder was a little limited, which would restrict its use of the cannons. On the morning of August 3rd, General St. Ledger demanded the surrender of the fort. After being refused, he began his siege. St. Ledger did not have sufficient cannons to take down the fort walls from a distance. He relied on his Indians to surround the fort and pick off defenders with their rifles. Similarly, the defenders used rifles to pick off the attackers, leading to a contest of sharpshooters over the next few days. The fort was in a good position to hold out for a while, but ultimately it would have to fall to a superior force unless a relief column could come to its aid. At this point, General Burgoyne had chased most of the American forces to the Hudson River where the Americans were still trying to regroup and defend against the attack of the larger army. The Continentals simply did not have forces to spare to send to Fort Stanwix. That said, Colonel Gansevoort was not ready to give up the fort yet, and so the two sides settled into a siege. So next week, we will talk about, you guessed it, the Siege of Fort Stanwix. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com/arp50 and use that code ARP50. To get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box, that's code ARP50 at FactorMeals.com/ARP50. To get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution podcast after show. As always, I want to thank Trey Nance for being one of our top supporters at the Hamilton Club level on Patreon. Also thanks to Mike Hager, who supports the podcast at the Robert Morris Circle level. I'm so glad that the podcast continues to grow and become more popular, but with the increased growth comes increased expenses. And I greatly do appreciate everyone who has stepped up to help me cover my costs by contributing on Patreon or Subscribestar. This week, I introduced some of the key players of the St. Ledger Expedition, who would lead the siege of Fort Stanwix that we will get into more next week. Unlike the Burgoyne Expedition, which primarily was made up of British regulars and Germans, the St. Ledger Expedition was largely Native Americans with a fairly significant portion of local Tory militia as well. I think that General Burgoyne divided it up that way because he did not consider St. Leger's army to be of primary importance to his campaign. Many British officers from this period had little respect for Native Americans as part of an army. They were not used like regular soldiers. And to be fair, these same British soldiers had a similarly low opinion of the colonial troops as well. But even if military officers did not respect them as soldiers... The British government did respect the native tribes. They did not treat them like uncivilized savages, even if they used that term occasionally. The highest ranking native on this mission, Joseph Brandt, is a good example of how men found their way into being part of both worlds. Brandt was a full blooded Mohawk, but he also adopted a great many European ways. He dressed as a European at times and often wore a mix of both native and European clothing. He was a savvy businessman and an investor, and made a pretty good life for himself. Later in life, he would have an estate in Canada of several thousand acres, and would maintain a plantation with at least 40 slaves. Even so, he never stopped being a leader for the Mohawk people. We will hear more about Brant in future episodes as he continues to fight in upstate New York for his tribe's traditional lands. Brant would continue to fight throughout the war and even after the war. He would play a major role in setting up the Western Confederacy that sought to push back American advancement into the Northwest Territories. He also turned to diplomacy in order to recover the lands his people lost. He would later meet with President Washington and New York Governor George Clinton in hopes of getting some sort of compromise sadly for the mohawk people those efforts would be largely futile brant would become a colonel in the british army later in the war but he would always command native americans not british regulars among the colonists he would later get the nickname monster brant for his role that the colonists thought he played in the cherry valley massacre as i said he led an interesting life But of course, this week we're focused on the Siege of Fort Stanwix, and we'll be covering more of that, as I said, next week, along with the Battle of Oriskany, which was part of the secondary wing of Burgoyne's Saratoga campaign. There are several good books that deal specifically with the Mohawk Valley Campaign by General St. Ledger, and one of those books is this week's book recommendation. You may notice it has a similar name and a familiar author to another recent book recommendation of the week. This week's book is called With Musket and Tomahawk, Volume 2, The Mohawk Valley Campaign in the Wilderness War of 1777, by Michael O. Locus. I recommended Volume 1 of With Musket and Tomahawk by this same author a few weeks ago. That book focused on the capture of Fort Ticonderoga and much of the rest of what became known as the Saratoga Campaign. The the book I'm recommending this week, Volume 2, really just focuses on St. Ledger and his attempt to capture Fort Stanwix. With about 250 pages devoted to just this expedition, it gets into pretty good detail and gives a good understanding of events. Like his other books, Logus gives a good day-to-day and sometimes hour-by-hour breakdown of exactly what is happening when. He first published his book in 2012. So, if you really want to get all the details of the Saint Ledger campaign, With Musket and Tomahawk Volume 2 is a great choice. And if you want a detailed account of the entire campaign in upstate New York in 1777, you will probably want to get all three books in the With Musket and Tomahawk series by Michael Logutz. All three of these books are also available as audiobooks, so if you're looking for more content for listening, you have that option as well. If you do buy the books, either audio or regular format, uh, be sure to go through the link from my website or blog before ordering so that I get a commission. Remember, if you use those links, the podcast gets a commission on any Amazon purchases you make, even if those purchases are unrelated to the original link. It's a great way to support the show without any additional cost to you. For my online recommendation this week, I want to recommend another free ebook in the public domain on archive.org. It's called Border Wars of the American Revolution by William Leitz Stone. This book, which was published in 1845, covers the entire revolution from the perspective of the conflict with the Native Americans. The recommendation this week is just Volume 1, which ends in 1779. It is, of course, written with an American bias and has a few unfortunate prejudices of the 19th century against Native American people. For its time, though, it does try to be a rather dispassionate account of what happened and I certainly thought it was an interesting read. You can search for Border Wars of the American Revolution on archive.org, or, as always, I have a direct link to the book on my website at amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast.